Welcome to another conversation on the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Casey. I often ask clients who I'm working with on the retirement coaching side of what I do, what would you like to get better at in retirement? What would you like to work on? And after a while, they'll say something about an activity. Well, I'd really like to work on my golf game or, you know, my backhand in tennis can certainly improve some activity of some kind. But then if I ask what else, they'll usually talk a little bit about becoming a better person in some way. And that's what today's conversation is about, a set of skills you could choose to work on in retirement that will not only make the transition easier, but might make it an easier experience for you and those around you. My guest today is Dr. Kristen Neff. She received her doctorate from the University of California at Berkeley and is currently an associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. During her last year of graduate school, she became interested in Buddhism and has been practicing meditation in the insight meditation tradition ever since. While she was doing her postdoctoral work, she decided to conduct research on self-compassion, a central construct in Buddhist psychology and one that had not yet been examined empirically. Kristen Neff is a pioneer in the field of self-compassion research, creating a scale to measure the construct almost 20 years ago. She's been recognized as one of the world's most influential research psychologists. In addition to writing numerous academic articles and book chapters on the topic, she's the author of the book, Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself, and her latest, Fierce Self-Compassion, How Women Can Harness Kindness to Speak Up, Claim Their Power, and Thrive. In conjunction with her colleague, Dr. Chris Germer, she has developed an empirically supported training program called Mindful Self-Compassion, which is taught by thousands of teachers worldwide. They co-authored the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook, as well as teaching the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, a guide for professionals. She is also co-founder of the nonprofit Center for Mindful Self-Compassion. Dr. Neff, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. So how did you first become interested in self-compassion? Well, I actually learned about self-compassion in my last year of graduate school at UC Berkeley. And it was just a stressful time in my life. I had gotten divorced recently. uh, And also, I was really stressed about would I get a job after getting my PhD. (laughs) The prospects didn't look great. Um, So I thought I'd learn mindfulness meditation because I had heard that it was good for stress. And the woman leading the mindfulness course I took talked about the importance of giving compassion to yourself as well as others, you know, turning this supportive lens inward as well as outward. And so I tried it out. I mean, well before I figured out how to meditate, which which took a while, I saw almost the immediate benefits of being kinder and more supportive toward myself as I was experiencing all this stress. And then I did get a job eventually at University of Texas at Austin and decided to research it. So that's really how I got here. It came from personal practice primarily. And as an academic, how do you define self-compassion? So I define it as having three elements. So the first, you know, you might think of as more obvious kindness as opposed to harsh self-judgment. In the field of psychology, actually, compassion is often seen as a motivation, which is the motivation to alleviate suffering. So it's that sense that I want to help myself be well. Um, But it's not just that kindness. There are two other things that are important. One is mindfulness, actually. It's not an accident, I think, that I learned about this while learning mindfulness meditation. In other words, we need to be able to be aware that we're struggling, and we need to be willing to turn toward it and acknowledge it and work with it. So if we pretend it's not there, like stiff upper lip, 
then we can't give ourselves the compassion we need. So we need to be able to say, hey, I'm really hurting. This is hard. Give yourself kindness. And then what's really important and actually what differentiates compassion or self-compassion from pity is a sense of connectedness to others. So it's not saying, you know, poor me, woes me. I'm the only person who's made a mistake or I'm the only person that's, that's struggling. It's really saying, hey, all human beings struggle. All human beings are imperfect. Actually, that's the way God made us. And it's nothing, unfortunately, what happens, especially when we make a mistake, but even a health challenge occurs or something difficult happens, we think it's not supposed to be this way, as if the way things are supposed to be is perfect. And if they aren't perfect, something has gone wrong and something's wrong with me. And it's not really logical, but that sense of isolation really makes things a lot harder than they need to be. And so when we just remind ourselves quite simply, like, well, of course, this is a human experience. It's not just me then that's what makes it compassion as opposed to pity. So what do you think are the main benefits of self-compassion? Well, the research is very, very clear. So there are both mental and physical health benefits of self-compassion. So if you think of the word in Latin, compassion, passion means suffering. It's how are we with our suffering? And if we aren't with it in a healthy way, in other words, if we dive into it or we become overwhelmed by it, we may develop depression or anxiety or you know sleep disorders, eating disorders. And it also may start affecting our health. We might have a lot of cortisol, um, high blood pressure, you know, there's knock-on effects. So what happens with self-compassion is when we're struggling, we're hurting in some way. If we're there for ourselves, like we would be for a supportive friend, that means we're, we're stronger and we're more able to deal with the tough stuff without being knocked over by it. And so it's linked to better mental health, not only fewer negative things like depression, anxiety, stress, but also positive mind states like happiness and optimism. And that's because if you think about it, kindness, connectedness, these are positive emotions. So we're kind of framing our difficulty. We aren't pretending it's not there, but we're just being kind and supportive to ourselves in the midst of the difficulty. And these are positive emotions that help us cope. And then that's in turn linked to physical health. So for instance, when we're more self-compassionate, our cortisol levels are lower. You've got greater heart rate variability, for instance. And that means we also sleep better because we aren't just beating ourselves up all night so that we can't sleep. And so it's linked to both physical and mental well-being. What have you seen are some of the common misgivings about self-compassion? Well, unfortunately, there are a lot of misgivings. And in our culture, we're taught that it's a good thing to be compassionate to others, but not ourselves. And that's because there's just a lot of myths about what it does. Uh, One myth is is that it's a weakness, you know, compassion, it's soft. The research shows it's just the opposite. Think about it. What's the voice inside your head? Is the voice inside your head an enemy cutting you down, shaming yourself? Or is the voice inside your head an ally, a friend? You know, I've got your back. How can I help? So for instance, there's a lot of research with combat veterans. Most of the research is with, with veterans who came back from Iraq or Afghanistan that showed that veterans who are more able to be compassionate about the trauma they experienced and some of the moral injury, that they were less likely to develop post-traumatic stress syndrome. They were less likely to turn to alcohol as a way to deal with their their pain. And they were more able to function in daily life. They were less likely to consider suicide. And sadly, that's one of the ways when the trauma is really strong, people look for a way out. So when you have that inner friend, that inner ally that's like, hey, it's okay, you're human, I'm here for you, how can I help? Then that voice actually helps you to be stronger. So that's that's a myth, it makes you strong, not weak. Another one is that it's selfish. 
You know, as if we only have five units of compassion. And if I give three to myself, I only have two left over for other people. It doesn't work that way. The more compassion flows inward, the more resources you have, the more compassion you have available to give outward. And really importantly, without burning out. So for instance, caregivers who are self-compassionate have more ability and strength and stamina to care for others without burning out. So that's a misconception. Probably the biggest one though, is that it's going to make you self-indulgent or somehow it will make you be easy on yourself or unmotivated. The opposite is true. When it's okay to make mistakes, when you can acknowledge, hey, I did something wrong, I made a mistake, or I really need to work harder, this isn't working out for me, then that actually gives you, what it does is it provides a motivational engine to change, right? But you don't change because if you don't, you know, some, most people, they try to change themselves because I'm going to hate myself and shame myself unless I get it right. Well, it kind of works, but it also creates performance anxiety. It creates fear of failure. Shame is not exactly the best way to learn and grow, let's face it. So with self-compassion, the motivational engine is care. Just like when parents try to motivate their children, it comes from care because we care about our children. We want them to reach their full potential. The same thing with self-compassion. And so this motivation of care allows us to take more responsibility for mistakes we've made and do healthier behaviors like go to the doctor regularly and really importantly, to learn and grow from our mistakes. So that actually, I'll just give you an example. I just published a study, just came out two days ago, really brought off the presses where we trained NCAA athletes in self-compassion over um, six sessions. And what we found is not only did it help their physical, I mean, their, their mental well-being. So basically we taught them when, when they made a mistake at, in, during a game or in their training routine to be kind and supportive to themselves. And really importantly, what can I learn from this? Because I care about myself and I want to be the best athlete I can be. We found it actually improved their performance. And not only their own, their own perception, but the coach's perceptions of their performance. So when you have that voice that says, I have your back, how can I help? How can we learn? How can we grow? It's okay to make mistakes. I'm here for you. It's a very, very productive voice for positive change. That sounds like very valuable research. Yeah, I was excited by the results. I really was. And that motivational aspect is fascinating. Yeah. A different way to think of it. So in addition to your extensive research, what did you learn from parenting about self-compassion? Well, my experience in parenting is when you might say I really had to, I had to live what I was talking about. So my son, Ron, who's, who's actually 21 now and doing great. When he was about two, he was diagnosed with autism. And at that point, I'd been practicing self-compassion for about seven years. So thank goodness that I had that practice because I knew when he got the diagnosis that the best way through it would be for me to turn toward the pain of it, turn toward the fear and uncertainty and give myself a lot of kindness and support about yeah, the fear, the uncertainty that, that I do something wrong, all those things that come up when your child has a special needs diagnosis. And over and over again, as I parented Rowan, I would always remember to give myself compassion, either for my parenting mistakes or for how difficult it was. And what I found, it's really amazing. So the way human brains work is we're constantly resonating with each other. We have specialized mirror neurons. That, so I feel what you feel, you feel what I feel. And so when Rowan would have these horrific tantrums, which he did, not only was it unpleasant, like from the outside, on the inside, especially as his mother, it was just so overwhelming, like 
just feeling like, what do I do? How do I make this stop? It was just so, went through every cell of my body, these ear splitting tantrums. And I couldn't reach him often when he was deep in the throes of his autism. So I would give myself compassion for how painful it was. I'd actually turn most of my attention inward. This is so hard, Kristen. You know, it's going to be okay. I'm here for you. It will, will pass. I care about you. And what I would find over and over again is the more compassion I gave myself, the more my son would calm down. Because of course, he was resonating with my mind state. And so I would almost learn to regulate his emotions through the process of self-compassion. And that still, so he did grow up and he's much better, but when he learned to drive, for instance, the same thing, when he was making a left turn across the road and I was like, you know, he would feel that and he would tense up and then he would freak out. But I would just give myself compassion for all parents go through this. It's really scary when your child to make a left turn across a busy road, then I would calm down and he would calm down. So it really just taught me how, that's another reason why self-compassion isn't selfish. Because what you bring into the world, what your internal mind state is, is the state of mind that everyone you interact with feels. Whether you're a parent or, or, or just dealing with colleagues or your friends or your partner, changing your internal landscape helps you be with others in a way that's just much more productive. And again, a lot of research to back that up. People have better relationships when they're more self-compassionate. So thinking of our audience, what I've noticed is when people retire and they transition from the world of full-time work, they're really thrilled about gaining freedom, having much more flexibility, get to do whatever they want. But they also encounter some losses that surprise them. Loss of identity based on their profession, loss of structure, loss of some collegial relationships, for example. So how can self-compassion be helpful during a life transition? Well, one of the ways it's helpful and to kind of understand this is it's useful to talk about the difference between self-compassion and self-esteem. So self-esteem, the word esteem is a judgment. How do I value myself? How do I evaluate myself? And often we evaluate ourselves through our work identities, right? Especially if you've been successful at your work or you're really identified with it, then that's where we get our sense of self-worth. I'm a successful business person or doctor or whatever it is you are. And the thing about self-esteem is it's not necessarily a problem, but it's, it tends to be contingent. In other words, it, we, it's like a fair weather friend. It's there for us when we're succeeding, but when we fail, it deserts us. Or it's there for us when other people like us, but it deserts us when other people don't like us. Or it's there for us when we look the way we want to look. That's another issue with aging. Of course, we don't look the way we used to. And also it's comparative. It's like we need to be special and above average. And again, oftentimes the way we feel special and above average is through work success. And so what happens often when we retire, and by the way, I'm semi-retired. I took early retirement, so I'm 56. So I'm still working in my self-compassion work, but my professor identity was huge for me. So I, I understand this a little bit, the process of it. It's like that sense of self-worth isn't available anymore. But the beautiful thing about self-compassion is it's an unconditional source of worth. It comes simply from being a human being. In other words, the moment you were born, your worthiness as a human being, you didn't have to go to graduate school to be a worthy human being. It's like intrinsic to being human, this, this worthiness of that self-compassion and compassion derives from. And so there's actually research that shows that as people maybe have struggles with their self-esteem, the fair weather friend, self-compassion can be this constant friend. And it's, it's a much more stable self-esteem source of self-worth over time. 
So that's part of what hap- is happening in identity transitions. Um, but also, you know, things like the loss of structure. That's not so much self-esteem issue. It's just, yeah, you, you have to do things differently. And it can be challenging. And so what self-compassion can do is, is really, you know, the quintessential self-compassion question is, what do I need? And often we don't even ask ourselves that question. It's been dictated to us. Oh, I need to go to college. I need to get a graduate degree. I need to get a job. I need to have children. I need to send my children to college. I need to do this and this and this. We don't ask ourselves, well, what do I need? And again, one of the, one of the beauties of retirement is you can actually have, you can pause and say, well, what is it that I need? What is it that I value? What's really important to me? But you, you need to do it for yourself. At this point, no one else is doing it for you. The structure isn't given from the outside. It's given from the inside. But it's a beautiful time to be able to do some exploration of what are my values, what really gives me pleasure, what's important to me. For many people, it's a time of, well, actually service, giving back. That gives me pleasure. Maybe, you know, golfing, spending time in nature taking up art, but it has to really be done intentionally because it's not done from the outside anymore, which is a gift, but it also, you know, it's a little bit of work. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And what's been your experience so far with semi-retirement? Because I think that's an option that many people overlook, but I think it offers the best of both worlds personally. Yeah. No, for me, it's great. I mean, so again, it's not like I'm not working. So myself, in a way, I was a professor and I also had this full-time self-compassion job, teaching workshops, writing books, um, got a nonprofit organization that I founded. So I'm still busy, I, although I'm less busy than I was. I've got a lot more free time compared to when I was trying to constantly put out papers. Like so that paper I mentioned, that sports one, is probably, I got one more data set that I'll publish and that's probably it. But what's really noticed a shift is the identity as an academic. I really identify with being Dr. Kristen Neff, associate professor. By the way, I still do have my title, but I'm modified status, which basically means I don't get paid. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not mentoring graduate students anymore. I'm not going to committee meetings. So it has changed my identity. So I'm finding, first of all, a lot of freedom in it that I didn't realize the ways that academic identity kind of constrain me. It's like in a podcast, I wouldn't feel safe before to say something that couldn't be backed up by empirical research. And now it's like, I can say it. I don't have a research study to back that up, but that's okay. So that's kind of freedom. It's some, some freedom. But yeah, it's, it's really made me think, well, then who am I? If who I am primarily isn't an academic, I must admit the self-compassion, but that will be my identity till the day I die. I mean, that's just, that's really my life's calling. But it's been really nice. It's been really, I'm also, you know, in a fortunate financial position that I was able to do that because to be honest, the self-compassion work draws more than my salary as as an associate professor. So, but it definitely has been an identity shift. I've really seen it. And it's, it's interesting. What I notice is when I meet people at a party, I used to, oh yeah, I'm I'm a professor. And people say, oh, you're a professor. (laughs) Now it's like, you know, what do I say? (laughs) That's interesting. That's probably shared with a lot of people. In retirement, it's like when people ask you, what do you do? And you you don't say that, that job title anymore. It's a shift. I had a recent guest who's a retired aviation engineer named Jeff Furtz, and he came up with this idea. He teaches courses at uh, OSHA Learning Institute in Rhode Island on retirement. He came up with an idea. He had his people in his, his workshop create a new business card for the types yeah. of things they're involved in, in in retirement. So I thought it was a great, great idea. What have you yeah. noticed about any changes or what motivates you these days? So obviously, selfcompassion.org, you've got a clear sense of purpose. 
But what have you noticed about motivation for you? Yeah, well, so it definitely is more intrinsic. I mean, I basically have, I've always done what I wanted to do. Like when I did my research, I did the research I wanted to do. But now that's really the case. I mean, there's no reason. So people invite me to review a paper or to write a chapter. And it's like, I don't have to do it for my VITA or for you know my annual evaluation at work. And so it really gives me the freedom to choose based on, will this give me pleasure? Will it satisfy me? And if not, I, have a, I feel a lot more freedom to say no to things. So that's been a change in terms of motivation. It's, it's purely based on what I want to do, what gives me pleasure or what I think might be really helpful to other people. Yeah. So that's probably the biggest one is, is no longer having those external benchmarks or criteria that I need. When you're a professor, you're evaluated every single year. It's, pretty, it's constant. And ha- not having that is really, really nice. I have to say, <laughs> no one's going to evaluate me ever again. Yay! <laughs> That's definitely freeing. Uh, yeah. So in addition to your academic research and the books that you've written for a general audience, I've, I've read many of them. You've also co-authored a workbook, the Mindful Self-Compassion Workbook that has a wealth of information, very valuable exercises that can really help people learn self-compassion. What are some of the the challenges people need to overcome to be kinder to themselves and how can the workbook be helpful? Yeah. So just to say the the history of the workbook. So I I started researching self-compassion in 2003. And then in 2008, I met someone named Chris Germer who said, Kristen, I love your research. But it's not enough just to research this stuff. You need to teach people how to be more self-compassionate, right? And then you can research that. <laughs> and so I started teaming up with him. He had, he had much more experience leading workshops. I had no experience in that area. And so we created something called the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, an eight-week empirically supported program, really good benefits. And so the, the workbook is basically walks you through that eight-week program, but in workbook format, kind of exercise by exercise. And it's actually our best-selling book, my best-selling book, because therapists are, you know, if you want to learn self-compassion, it's like all there, all the steps you need to learn self-compassion are in the workbook, basic concepts. It kind of takes you through an order, starting small, working your way up. And um, yeah, it really lays out the skills of self-compassion. And it is, they are skills. It is a resource. The good news is, is even if you aren't used to doing it, it's not a totally new skill because almost everyone has developed the skill of compassion for others. We know what it sounds like. We know what it feels like. The skill is just giving yourself permission to turn this resource inward and not just outward. Um, so it's actually easier than you would think to practice self-compassion. The biggest hurdle is giving yourself permission and remembering to do it. But the workbook can be really handy for that reason. Well, I think it's a very valuable set of skills for anyone transitioning to the new life after full-time work. And and again, it has uh, a lot of resonance because you're going through that as well. You've made that switch to the semi-retirement world. And I've followed your work for years, so it's been a pleasure to have the opportunity to talk with you and appreciate the work that you do. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure as well. So time to note a few takeaways, ideas that you can put into action following this conversation today. Here are three ideas for your consideration. Number one, what would life be like if you are kinder to yourself? What could self-compassion do for you? And I think, as Dr. Neff mentioned, what would happen if you worked on turning that inner critic, that inner voice, 
into an inner ally. Number two, is it time to focus on what you need? For many people who care about others and care for others, a lot of time and attention gets focused on their needs, often putting your needs on the back burner. Is it time to flip that script? Is it time to periodically, as she suggested, ask, what do I need? And number three, it's good to understand the theory, but focus on the practice. Dr. Neff has done extensive research on self-compassion. You'll find a couple of links in the show notes to give you a view into that. There are also her books for a general audience also in the show notes that can get you up to speed on that. But I think her point about this is really about the doing is critical. And there are two resources. One is the workbook that we discussed, and the other is the courses that she mentioned. So whichever of those two works for you, I'd highly recommend them as a way to really get engaged in making this happen for you. So go beyond the theory and really invest time in the practice. You'll be glad you did. Thanks for listening to the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. My mission is to help people retire smarter by going past just planning for the financial side of retirement and embracing how you're going to invest your most precious asset, your time. Thanks for listening. 